Welcome to Circus Voices, brought to you by CircusTalk.com, the leading online career and casting marketplace for circus and performing arts, and an essential resource for circus and multidisciplinary artists and talent seekers. I am your host, Craig Kwok, and in this month's series, Portraits of Inclusion, we will be exploring some of the boundaries between who and what makes something circus in the face of the 21st century's rapidly changing social needs. In this week's episode, Academic Frontiers, researchers Adam Woolley, Dr. Veronique Richard, and Dr. Dean Krillars get together to discuss and share some of their scientific curiosities about the beneficial impacts of circus. Please join us now as we take a listen to their conversation and stay tuned after for more information about the podcast series and other Circus Talk promotions. Many thanks to everyone for being here. And now let's start the show. Hi, everyone. My name is Adam Woolley, and I'm a circus coach based in Philadelphia in the United States. Uh, I've been coaching circus for about 15 years for recreational through professional levels, and I am here today with two very dear friends and super interesting people who I'm very excited to talk about, uh, Dean Krelars and Veronique Richard. Uh, Dean and Veronique, welcome. I am so excited for this conversation that we're about to have. And and I'd love you both to like introduce yourselves because uh, you both have such storied backgrounds that I don't want to ruin it for anybody. Uh, Dean, tell us a little bit about your work and, and what brought you to a circus podcast. Yeah. Well, uh, Adam, it's great to have this conversation today. I think I'll start the story about how I met circus and then explaining who I am academically after that. I, I was in Banff, Canada, pretty nice place in the world at the Banff Center for the Arts. It's one of our top arts get together places in the mountains for a retreat. And I was running this conference and this fellow from Montreal had sent in an abstract to um, this conference and we accepted it. And I remember reading the abstract and going, Who's this clown? And I literally said that in my head. <laughs> and um, and then I said, oh, this is going to be cool. And so the room of 500 people broke up into two, 200, half in one, half in the other. I stayed in this circus talk. And I was sitting in the back of my computer with my cadre of graduate students around me. And I started typing on my computer, doing my other work and started listening. And pretty soon I closed my computer, put down everything, and I got up from my table at the back, moved one table closer, another table closer, another table closer, almost so much so that I was stalking the person as they finished their last words about circus. I was so interested into it. I knew they were going to be mobbed with questions at this conference. So I wrote down on a piece of paper, true story, let's start a journey together. And I handed it to Patrice Aubertin who was uh, just left Cirque du Soleil at the time and had started at the National Circus School to start up a research institute in circus. I had it to him, I walked away. And a week later, I was in Montreal with uh, Patrice and learning about circus and that he wasn't a clown and that circus was more than just clowns. <laughs> he's, he's still and a bit of a clown, come on. He is a clown. <laughs> he's still a bit of a clown. But nonetheless, um, that's how I met. It was coincidental. And so I joined a circus at 50 years of age. That's 10 years ago, almost to the day. 
And uh, so I'm 10 years into circus. And now I'm the scientific director at the Circus Research Institute in Montreal. And I've been doing that for almost a decade now. And I'm also a University of Manitoba professor studying movement, but in particular, physical literacy. And what the magic for me has been is the beautiful combination of how circus is physical literacy. And um, I, I am learning so much from the circus world to share with my physical literacy friends. And it's uh, been a great journey so far. I cannot wait to hear more about how you think physical literacy and circus come together. But uh, I also want to toss the ball over to Veronique Richard, who is uh, a sports psychologist who also studies creativity. And like, I'm excited to hear about how you found circus as well. Yeah. Well, first, it's so nice to hear this story that Dean just said, because I've heard it from him from Patrice and every time there's a little bit of details that are added I love it I love that story um what about me well uh I bumped into circus in 2011 for the first time I was doing a master degree in sports sciences with a specialty in performance psychology and we were invited by the, in Canada, we call this mental performance consultant and not sports psychologist, um, was invited uh, by the mental performance consultant at Cirque du Soleil to just visit the facility with my supervisor. And at the end, I don't know, I was like, hey, would you take interns here? Just like, and he was like, yeah, sure. Do you want to do an internship here? And I was like, I would love to. And then he was like, perfect. Next summer, let's get you in and you can do a 12 weeks of internship at Cirque du Soleil. And I was like, my God, that was almost too easy. And so I did. And I don't know. I was allowed to, of course, follow the mental performance consultant and go see the workshop that he was delivering. But I was also allowed to go to follow the group and go in all the artistic classes that were happening at the time at Cirque du Soleil. And literally, I could not help myself but noticing how much the artists slash athlete, because they were kind of athlete becoming artists, um, how much they were evolving psychologically through the artistic session. So then I got really curious. I was also working, I'm a former figure skater and I was working with some figure skater at the time, um, like helping them developing mental skills. And I was like, you know, the talking thing is good, but what they are doing at circus, like the improvisation, all the intervention through movement, I was like, this is like, it appeared to me like even more powerful. So I asked two of the Cirque du Soleil teacher if they would be willing to get into a research project with me and kind of just adapt their intervention, which was mostly theatrical improvisation, comic improvisation, a lot of like clowning bouffant. Like it was Massimo and Michou. I love those two. They are amazing. And I was convinced they were going to tell me that they had better thing to do with their time. But they were so curious to, to know whether their intervention could have a psychological impact on people. So 
they were thrilled and we got all on board and that became the first study of my PhD, which let's be honest, at the time I didn't really know what I was doing. I just was curious about this. <laughs> and we did a 20 hour intervention with 10 figure skater. I measure self-esteem, mindfulness, creative attitude and values. We got pretty a uh, positive outcome from this intervention like a lot of transformation happened for those skaters like it, that was maybe in 2013 and um literally the skaters that i still meet today they are still talking to me about when they did that so yeah. it started like this just like i don't know trying different things and then my phd become became sorry the role of creativity in sport and from there Things just, I mean, I was very naive at the time. I didn't do this for any purpose other than fulfilling my curiosity. Uh, and it's when I was in Florida, Florida State University, that I end up meeting Dean and Patrice on a Zoom call. Of course, like I've been in Montreal for so long, never met those guys. And then I'm in Florida and we um, connect together. So yeah, that's, and I've been into circus since then. Yeah, and I, I love what you said. I love what you said about uh, creativity in sport, because I feel like if we're talking about creativity in sport or athleticism in creativity or athleticism in artistry or performance, then, then circus seems to inevitably sort of bubble up to the surface. And, and I feel like both of you represent a, a trend that I've been seeing over the past, I'm going to say 20 years or so of increasing academic interest in circus arts as a place for creativity and elite performance, but also as a place for creativity and kind of movement literacy in kids, right? There's two kind of seemingly separate, but at least from a circus coach's perspective, very, very much uh, bonded aspects of circus. And that is the, the educational aspect where we're where, you know, social circus is seen as this incredible kind of accessible tool for education. And then also circus as an art form and circus as, you know, a showcase for human potential. Uh, so I've been seeing more and more academic interest and more and more interest in doing research into circus and circus artists over the past 20 years now kind of starting to hit some, some real momentum. Uh, so I wonder, I wonder if either of you have any interesting stories of research or stories of kind of the the science that you see happening or the academic interest in circus and where you think that's coming from and where you think it might be going in the future. Uh, this doesn't, I mean, I know both of you, so I know that there are some exciting projects you can both talk about. Uh, so just whoever, take it, take it away. And, you know. Well, I guess, um, like you just said, Adam, we really started thinking about the because in front of you at, uh, in Montreal, um, you see the most elite performers, uh, many of the most elite performers in the world. And as a result of that, there's, we do our elite research because I was fascinated with quite a number of things that I saw there. But we also started simultaneously research on how circus works with children in public schools. Very apparently di uh, diametrically opposed, but in, in actual fact, their continuity I'm going to start with the high performance stuff because what I was taken by, I can remember this very well. I, I met some performers and I was able to have a lot of information about them in terms of their 
physiology, their body types, all that kind of stuff. And I was taken aback when I got the database of the performers um, and saw that by age 65, the bone densities of people performing circus for their life were perfect, that there are three standard deviations or better than a 20-year-old's in the general population. So I was like, well, hold it. How's that happen? I was told in in, in my training in, in, in the medical school that, boy, oh boy, what's going to happen is that after 20, your bones are going to go away, your muscles are going to go away. And in fact, I found a, a thousand performers that their bones stayed till 65. And I was like, hold it now. That's revolution. And uh, because that means it's possible. That means you're not going to break down in life. And then I looked at injury rates and I found that circus performers had lower injury rates than their gymnastic counterparts. And again, I was blown away by this. And I kept on seeing circus magic appearing. And I was going like, what is the protective aspect of circus for physical, psychological, social well-being? I measured in a large number of circus artists their uh, psychological distress, and it was lower than the athletes, their athletic counterparts in sport, by half. And I was like, okay. Wow, by half. Half, half. And, and Vero knows this scale very well, Kessler 6 scale. And this scale is like a, a very good indicator of psychological distress. And the average sporty person, like elite athlete in sport, has about an, a value of 18% that are in the red zone. We had only 9%. And I was even less than the average population. I was okay. So psychologically protected, their bones are protected, their muscles are protected, there are in, less injuries. I was like, how's this working? So that really brought me into, wow, there is some magic to the secret sauce of circus. And so that's why I immediately went to kids. If we can get it in public schools and use the circus way or circus itself, we can have a huge impact on all those factors and things like Vero talk about making people more innovative or creative. So that's what caught me. And I think the future is just like you said, we're just undoing some of the first pebbles of the beautiful mosaic that it is and beginning to publish those and share it with the world. If I can add on what Dean is saying and maybe a nerd out here a little bit. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, I think one of the, like Dean just said, secret, secret so sauce or like this like key Uh, the fact that creativity remains alive and really important into circus throughout the development. Okay, we could argue at the highest level, not all the company are supporting necessarily um, the creativity or of artists. But I, I feel that um, there are like those people are really connected to their creativity. And that for me was the biggest uh, difference between sport and circus. In sport, it's like compliance. You need to all be the same. You need to move a certain way. There's expectation. And then at the end of the day, only outcome matter. Like medals, getting beating a team or whatever. In circus, it's so different because it's like, hey, the process matters almost more than the outcome. And then um, this is where I was like, oh, like we need to kind of merge those two environments so they can influence each other. But of course, then everyone is asking 
what is creativity? And I think the first thing that comes to mind is like creativity is this like outcome oriented product. It gotta be like world changing and it gotta be like something no one have ever seen. And this is where I got, I was like, no, creativity is not just that, right? It's not just the outcome. It's just it's not just a world breaking, whatever. And I started to really search for different definition of creativity. And if I can read you one, because I think this is where like we can have a, an interesting conversation. And Adam, I'm sure you will uh, like this definition. I even like pull it out to make sure that I was going to say it properly. So oh, creativity can be okay. Perfect. Let's go. Creativity can be defined as a process that both explores and expands the area of possibility for individuals, groups, and society. It should not be reduced to a product or to a creative person, but defined by the expanded zone of possibility that creative action build on and open for self and others. And pretty much all my research turn around create, creating or designing creativity supportive environment so we can open those spaces we can enhance those possibilities and then all environments become a little bit more inclusive which as we both all know here like elite environment can be quite exclusive and like push people out more than bring people in so my big mission with my research it's to go within environment that are sometimes a little close and to allow different types of people to just fulfill their potential because they have multiple possibility. It's not a linear line that is already draw for you. And if you don't fit in this line, well, you're, yeah, you know, so, um, yeah, that, that's a, the research that I'm doing is all about environment and creating those, what I like to call creativity supportive environment based on the decision, uh, on the definition, sorry, that I just uh, read you. I, I, by the way, just for reference, this definition comes from the book, The Possible uh, by Vlad Glavenu, which is a dear colleague of mine. So yeah, just giving him the credit for that definition. <laughs> yeah, I love, I love that definition. I love that definition a lot. And and I feel also just the need as a, as a circus coach who's kind of seen lots of different sides of the industry over the last, you know, 15, 20-ish years to, to just acknowledge that like circus environments, whether they're performance environments or teaching environments, are not like monolith, right? They're definitely very sporty circus environments that are not creative supportive, you know, or supportive of creativity. And, and there are definitely Absolutely. circus environments that that are. And one of the things that I feel like uh, that we see as circus broadens its scope around the world and more and more people are exposed not only to circus as a performing art, but to circus as like a participatory activity or as a, as a lifestyle choice even. Uh, one of the things that, that I see is kind of the, the trade, the cultural trade that begins to happen between circus and sports and between circus and dance forms, right? And I think this cultural trade is, is inevitable, but is also important to catch and to monitor and to say, is this cultural trade going in ways that align with our values as practitioners, uh, with our values as a circus community, 
right? Uh, do we continue to value creativity? Do we continue to value uh, inclusivity? Uh, are we willing to present new models for elite training uh, that that don't revolve around kind of some of the things that we know uh, inhibit creativity, like authoritarianism and strict obedience and, you know, like performance-based outcomes? Are we willing to kind of let the field be a little more expansive uh, at every level of our industry, right? Because the professional performing part of the industry informs how coaches teach, right? It informs how students learn. And so this is really sort of an industry-wide question, at least from my point of view, uh, that, that spans kind of what Dean was talking about with working with kids and trying to insulate kids from, you know, like a sedentary lifestyle, from the, the kind of things that can quash their creativity or their movement creativity, right? Adam, it's uh, kind of interesting that you mentioned it that way because one of the very first things Patrice and I did was we went to the library at the National Circus School, which is one of the nicest libraries on, on circus. And we brought in everybody from around town uh, who was in the industry and on a talk on creativity. This was, I think, pre-Veronique. Um, and and my job <laughs> and was... Pre and post me, I love it. Yeah, no, I like it. Well, this is the era. The, the world is going to be demarcated <laughs> by Veronique. Um, arrival, wow. <laughs> the arrival of... Yes, yes. But uh, we were sitting there and of course we, a number of artistic directors came in and some other people and they were like curious, who's this, you know, uh, new guy in town named Dean. And I sat down and immediately said, when I saw creativity design in the elite way, it was still a top-down approach. The artistic director and the, and the artist had almost no say. And, and across the street at the circus school is a little bit better than that. But one of my first jobs was to try to take circus, the hierarchy of little C to big C, and turn it on its side so that everybody could see their place in the value of developing creativity. And it worked. It was not a fun conversation necessarily for about an hour. But after that, everybody realized they can still have their place in creativity and that everybody has a role. And... and that made a significant change in the tone of, of people seeing the value of, of creating, as now Veronique calls it, fostering creative environments. And, and I think that is only going to grow exactly the way you're suggesting, Adam. So it's not just creativity for the end product's sake, but it's creativity in the cognitive expansion of humanity because that's really what it is. That's, that's Vlad's definition. We need to just expand our boundaries. And, and I think it's not about jumping outside the box. It's about making the box bigger. And the bigger and bigger you make that box, maybe there's a part of the box that nobody's been to, the moths have only been there, but then all of a sudden light comes on and everybody goes, that's cool. That's an interesting part of creativity. But to me, I'm most interested in creating an innovative society. And that means everybody belongs to that hierarchy. It's not top down, it's sideways. If I can just, uh, yeah. One thing, like the expansion of uh, your cognitive capacity, what I think could be also very interesting is to see it as embodied cognition. And I know Dean, mm. you love uh, this topic as well. I think 
the way we the way creativity is perceived in like society is a lot about cognition so if you go to a creativity workshop you'll do like exercise of generating ideas brainstorming everything is about the brain kind of what i love about circus and this is one of the projects that i did a few years ago about the embodied journey of an idea or the journey of an embodied idea i should say uh is that with circus the body creates as well to fulfill the mind it's not just a cognitive process it's also a physical process and this can influence a lot a whole bunch of domain like it's not only about what's happening up there it's a whole system and by moving creatively like circus artists are amazing at doing then you can develop other creative creativity related sk skills for instance becoming a little bit more, more open-minded becoming a little bit more flexible um maybe creating new social connection with others because you guys were quite vulnerable in this movement creativity activity when i go into domain that are non-movers i will call it this way like quote like quotation mark and i'm telling them that we will move creatively just the moment of anxiety that happened for like a few seconds is like i see in their face that they're like frightening they're like oh my god what does that mean moving creatively and then we just do simple exercise right you don't have to do like circus aerial necessarily you just inspired yourself from different exercise and the willingness to take risk the tolerance to discomfort which is all stuff that are good for anyone in any domain by using movement can be actually enhanced so i think yeah we need to see it as circus can be good also in multiple domain just because they create with their body which definitely speak to the mind it's impossible that it's just a one-way top-down approach that being said adam you introduce yourself as a circus teacher you never you didn't really mention that now you're kind of slowly <laughs> drifting toward our world of research um why don't you tell us what are you going to do over the next year to expand the zone of possibility of people because i know yeah. you will yeah i sort of i sort of buried the lead in that one of, of like yeah. how does adam a circus coach know you know academics and scientists so i am here in actually winnipeg right now uh and i am studying for a master's in science where i'm doing research into uh physical literacy uh, which is a term that dean mentioned earlier based on uh, an intervention that happened here where they brought circus into public schools here in winnipeg and didn't just bring circus i feel like circus and physical education is something that people have been trying to sort of wrap their brains around for a while and and more often than not it either turns into a very excited pe teacher who starts to teach juggling to their classes uh or or a circus organization that is local that does you know like residencies in public schools and will come in and do like a fun circus workshop in a public school uh but but what i've become really interested in in my kind of mid-career as a coach is is the idea of of what is the circus way what is the magic here is is the magic of circus in the content of circus does walking a tight wire matter 
Or is there something about circuses pedagogical approach, the way that we teach circus or the way that circus can be taught, specifically kind of like a, a Reg Bolton style social circus, right? That is full of lots of uh, autonomy for kids. That's full of lots of creative approaches. I'm, I'm distinctly kind of talking about a social circus approach rather than a what I'll call a sports circus approach, right? Uh, what does this pedagogical approach offer in combination with the content? And what's happened here in Winnipeg, Dean, you can talk a little bit about the history of this project, but but what's happened that is so incredible is, is over the past six years, uh, a real effort has been made to take some PE teachers and train them not only in kind of the, the essential content of the basic circus disciplines, but also in the pedagogical approach that is married to that. And, uh, and Dean, why don't you talk for a moment just about like, what the results of that intervention have been up here. You're, you're, you've nailed it. We don't do the approach of having a juggling class only because that's not just circus, it's juggling or manipulation. But And we don't. We do have people coming in from the community, but what has actually happened is that we've grown. Once the research stopped in most research settings, the project ends. What was to our surprise here in Winnipeg is in 20. 15, we started the project, implemented in 2016, ended in 2017. And as a result of the merits seen by the principals, the teachers, the parents, the children, they said, we can't have this stop. And they then took those two schools, and now it's 11 schools will be coming up on K-12 to in the very near future, and 9,000 kids instead of like the 200 in a research study and so now it is fully integrated into a public education system and will never be removed. And it's not just a unit on circus, it's year long. And it has made, um, I always take my good friend, JJ Ross, who's really the, the person who spearheaded it here, who's the supervisor of the division. And he says, I don't want to tell you about it. Just come and see. And so we get three, four hundred people a year coming to these schools from around the world going. And most people leave crying uh, in the, the joy of movement and its benefits to these kids. It's, it's not, it, I don't have to write a science article, just come and see. And so that's why Adam's here, and I'm so happy that he is here, and that we can study how to magnify this even further and bring it to other jurisdictions. Because if you do the math, having a circus camp has only so many kids. But if all public school systems in North America and the world deliver circus, the math becomes exponentially bigger. And and the other thing that was interesting that Adam will be studying is there was contamination of the circus way in a good way to delivery of physical education in other sporting contexts, improving it dramatically. So, um, which we have documented and it's, and including Veronique, you'll be happy to hear, uh, neur very neurally diverse people as well. So it was one of the most inclusive environments that we've ever seen be created. So I'm tickled pink to have Adam here to do one of the projects and, and study the, um, how to bring this forward to the rest of the world. Yeah, and I want to I want to steal it back for just a second because I think this is such an exciting thing that you said, Dean, and, and that we've started to find here a little bit is that uh, 
the the coaches who saw kind of the circus pedagogical approach have started to take that approach into their their other units, into how they teach basketball, into how they teach other things. And and this to me is the really important thing that has always been true about circus, even prior to kind of, you know, the 250 year Philip Astley, this is a circus mark, right? The disciplines of circus have been around for, for so much longer. And if you look at professional performing circuses today, the list of disciplines that are like, quote unquote, allowed in the circus is, is always changing, is always dynamically shifting, right? You know, like skateboarding, yes. You know, like rollerblading, sure, come on in. You know, like this is not a set list of disciplines. And so one of the remarkable things when it comes to implementation in something like a public school system is that because the the disciplines themselves can be so variable, it really becomes about a pedagogical approach that can be adapted to a local community, right? And the resources of that local community and the individual characters of that local community. And this is, I think, one of the things we see whenever anything tries to scale or magnify is that if we lose the adaptability of the thing, the, the importance of the local community and taking advantage of uh, its strengths and kind of quirkiness and the unique characteristics, if that gets lost, implementations kind of tend to fall apart. And, and I see a potential in circus for those unique attributes and those little quirky things to actually like be magnified, right? To be the way that, that different school systems can really say, ah, like this is what it looks like in our school if we start to really spread and advocate for this this pedagogical approach, which I think is, you know, assuming for, for the audience who will be listening to this, like both known and like treasured, right? <laughs> I think also one thing that I want to highlight in what Dean created in Manitoba is like often creativity or circus or those type of activity are seen as a hey, let's do a workshop and like kind of it's a little bit sexy and it's like the thing you do in a camp. Like I know in sports, it's like, oh, you won't come to everyday practice, but we do this camp at the beginning of the season and there you could do your thing. Like if it was a parallel thing and it's like, oh, it's going to be fun. It is fun, but it's not only fun. And what I think one of the factors, because there is there are many factors, is that you said it, it's a year long thing. It's not just a module. It's not just a appendix. It's like, it's all the time there in different shapes and form. It doesn't have to be always circus, but Adam, you also uh, emphasize on, hey, this approach is also taken to teach basketball or other stuff. And it's like this whole idea, if you want, um, to make people more creative or more physically literate, it gotta be everywhere, not just in a fun activity once in a while and it's sexy and it's like, hey, we're bringing people from Cirque du Soleil, woo, big, like, no, it has to be like integrated. And that's, that's I feel it's a big challenge. And my question to both of you would be like, I, I think we, for us, the pedagogy of circus can be quite uh, clear because we are into it, but if, if we were going to define it a little bit or just through stories, maybe 
Uh, I like Adam that you said it need to remain flexible, adaptable. Any success story, like thing that you could tell us about that represent the pedagogy, but also like kind of, uh, yeah, talk to the pedagogy and what it is for those that may be like, hey, what, what does that mean? A circus pedagogy or a creatively supportive pedagogy? I can give you a, one great success story and many, but I'll give you one that just came to mind. So um, one of the teachers who was one of the earliest to get a circus arts instruction uh, credential from the National Circus School, plus be a physical education specialist teacher, which is the magic of the delivery here in where I live, um, they uh, got rid of um, training people to ride bicycles. And they, instead, they called it wheeled motion class. So that means every kid would find a wheeled motion that they'd love. And so they'd set up um, systems where people could have roller skates, uh, zip boards, um, skateboards, scooters, um, pumping tri tricycles, you name it. Anything was acceptable. And in the circus way, yeah, you find your shoes, you grow in your shoes, then you use your shoes. In this case... Everybody found their wheeled way of motion. And it, was a, and it was the circus way that created the wheeled way of moving. And uh, that was a complete mind changer for the phys ed teacher to deliver something that says, let me, it's not everybody should bicycle to school. That's a ridiculous physical activity way of thinking. It's everybody should have a way to get to school that's active. What's your way, which is the circus way. And so he just created that with a wheeled motion class. And if you go to this class, it is amazing to see because um, it, it, it speaks volumes. N none of those disciplines are really circus, but there, there's 20 different ways of wheeling around and they're all wheeling together. And then you look at that, I was like, wow, that's the way it should have been done like a hundred years ago, whenever the wheels came out. And um, <laughs> there, there is, and I've seen it, it go beyond even to racket sports. They don't teach badminton mm. anymore. They teach, they teach racket sports and all of them at once. And then that means you find your racket sport you like. I'm not going to give you six weeks of badminton, six weeks of tennis, six weeks of this. It's, that's the circus way. If you think about all the disciplines and that mm. smorgasbord of, of opportunity um, finds everybody finding belonging. And, and one of the best things I found in circus is that people find connectedness to others, to objects, to groups, to place. And then they get related to their to their space and others. And then they feel like they belong. I, I have my movement voice. It's my movement voice. I can do better in my movement voice. And people respect me for showing my movement voice to others. And that's belonging. And so I get a, I still get a quiver when I see kids feeling that they belong instead of just conforming. Uh, you yeah. kind of said that in the beginning, Adam. Conformity is not the way. It's finding belonging through movement. And to me, the exciting part of circus is that. You also, I know you often talk about self-efficacy or what we call confidence. Um, can you speak to this skill through? Uh, this is an amazing example, Dean. I like that you shared that with us. But maybe, yeah, if you can, like now you talked about more the social aspect. What about, yeah, what, what have you noticed in terms of you know, it's, it's funny, Vero, 
you know, it, it's funny as a neuroscientist, you know, we, we, we look at embodied cognition. I was, I was embarrassed uh, when I shifted from being a strict neuroscientist to what I do now. I was so embarrassed about thinking brain controls movement, Mr. Robot, you know, and that's a very neuroscience way. Brain makes movement with a little Schwarzenegger in there. And, but then I realized that movement makes brain. And so that's how I see embodied cognition to me is that the brain is very robust to changing its ways based on movement and not just in, you know, ability to control movement, but social, psychological. And, and to me, the, the concept of self-confidence or self-efficacy is really critical to all of this. You can have a person, you can have 10 kids that have the same competence, but the ones that are confident can perform. The ones that are confident eroded go to self-doubt, apprehension, and fear. And so circus is quite good at simultaneously creating competence and confidence in people. Sometimes by the seat of the pants, you know, if you ask how are you doing that, they don't really know. It doesn't matter. They, they explicitly um, produce this intentional competence, confidence linkage. Whereas in sport, they don't do that. And they certainly don't do that in medicine. As a matter of fact, they erode it. Um, so to me, the magic is part of that cycle of creating simultaneity of developing someone's competence with confidence. And that, that, that just, well, that is an amazing matrix for driving motivation to continue, whether that's in circus or anything else. It, you know, that's in the self-determination theory world called self-competence. I like to talk to parents about this and say, if you believe in yourself and you're pretty capable, that's one's internal belief in themselves, which I'm going to call inner trust. Circus also does a magical job of creating external trust because you have to work with others and trust your well-being with somebody else, social well-being, psychological and physical. The combination of inner trust and external trust is other, another bit of magic that I found that, that circus does so well. And, and to me, that's what parents want. Parent want a community that is safe. Parent wants a child that believes in himself. So that's, that's exciting once again. Thanks for asking that, Vera. Yeah, I'll expand on what, what Dean, I'll expand a little bit on what Dean just said, because I think we've been talking a lot about the effect of circus on, on kids, right? And the, the really interesting thing is I see all of these exact same things in adults, and specifically in adults who oftentimes have been derailed from athleticism or derailed from uh, a sense of belonging in their body or from a sense of fitness. You know, these are mm -hmm. adults who were maybe in a certain generation told specifically in PE class or had experiences specifically through middle school or high school that that their body was somehow not for them, that their body was somehow wrong, that participating in movement was not a thing, that they weren't allowed to be athletic. And, and so they kind of become a sort of misfit in the physical world and in their adult lives begin to find their way back to their bodies and to movement and to all of these things through circus. And maybe, maybe they become professional performers or maybe they're recreationalists, but the, the magic that we're talking about here, the, the kind of combination of inclusivity and creativity and belonging instead of conformity, 
is something that in my practice as a coach is just as important for adults at any moment in their life course as it is for kids. And that we really see the ability to take people who have been disenfranchised or derailed from this competence, confidence cycle that Dean is talking about and, and begin to build them back up to it. And, and that really comes, is rooted in a sense of actual physical accomplishment. It's not me as a coach saying, oh, you know, like, good job. And they're like, really, was it? Like, it's actually the person looking at what they're doing and going, wow, I'm 10 feet in the air. I'm 20 feet in the air. Wow, I'm juggling three balls. Like, I worked on this thing and I actually am accomplishing it now, which requires very little kind of external validation or false feeling cheerleading. It's, it's, it's right there in front of you that you are now accomplishing this physical act. And the, the confidence that comes along with that is, is irreplaceable and starts to feed out into other areas of people's lives and is as important for adults as it is for children and is as important for professional performing athletes as it is for both of these groups. I think this is just kind of an important human need that, that as kind of cultures around the world become more and more sedentary, uh, we're, we're losing touch with in some ways. And, and maybe circus or circus-based approaches offer us a way back into our bodies as they exist in space with each other, our bodies as they exist in space relating to objects and, and our bodies in relation to ourselves. I could not agree more. And, and one of the biggest irony that I often face, so I do movement improvisation with elite coaches. So oh, coaches tell us about that, that. Coach sport. And it's so interesting because those are kind of craftsmen, craftsmen of movement. Like, I mean, they teach movement all the time. And then they come to like movement improv and you ask them to move freely. And then at the beginning, they asked me like, oh, so can I do this? How can I? And I'm like, I don't know. It's, it's up to you. Like, there's no rule here. There's no way of moving. There's no, and it's so difficult for them at the beginning to get away from the rule-based approach. Like, tell me how to do the movement. Tell me how to, and it's, it's, it's anchored in ourselves because like you said, you, you said it nicely physical education, maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I often have men in my groups because wanted or not elite sport is governed by men most of the time. So it's men coaches, they come in and then you're like, Hey, let's challenge our pattern of walking. And then they're like, what challenge or pattern of walking? What do you mean? It's like, well, Walking is one of the first like complex movement that you've done as a kid. I'm sure you di didn't reconsider that since you were maybe one or two years old or somewhere in between. So let's challenge this. Let's move like if let's walk like if our body was made of water, of oil, of wood. And then at the beginning, you're like, oh, my Lord, what did I get myself into? <laughs> but then they got yeah. into it. And this is my only way that I found to convince those coaches that the way they coach sport might not be always the best way. And I'm not saying that's, that repetition is not needed sometimes and that creating those drill where you explain a technique 
to perform a movement. It has its place. The problem now is it's disbalanced. It's only this. And for all those that would learn more through discovery, exploration, there's no space for that. So it's just like trying to diversify the environment. But like, you're right, Adam, at the beginning, like they have zero confidence into their own capacity to move freely. They have no like agency. They have no connection whatsoever with their body. It's like asking them something and you're like, and you're working with movement all day long. And now it's your turn to move. We offer you like a free space and it's like frozen. They don't know what to do. So it's, it's just so fascinating to see that. The good news is that through time, we unfreeze them, unfroze, unfreeze, I'm not sure of the, yeah, whatever. Um, and, and you start seeing suddenly fluidity happening in the body. And then the number one feedback I always get is like, I didn't thought or I didn't think I could do this. Like literally, I would have never thought that. And you're like, yeah, because you never let yourself explore. You put the barrier before the like trying try and then you'll explore what you can do and then set your boundaries not the other way around that your boundaries are so tight from the beginning and then you're like oh no i cannot do this i cannot do this i cannot do this so yeah it's an interesting uh thing to do with coaches actually yeah i'm i'm both uh very impressed and somewhat jealous of of kind of getting to work with like I'm just imagining, I'm imagining the scenarios right now of oh, of, that you've had to run into. That. Oh, I'd love to see it. That would be so funny. I uh, always but, ask people not to tell me who's in the room because I don't want to be blind. Like, I don't want to be biased. I'm like, don't tell me. Like, just, it's all human. We'll do this. I don't want to know, like, this is a coach of, like, this high level, whatever, whatever. I'm like, no, 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 don't tell me. Just bring human in the room and we'll have, <laughs> like, we'll do our thing and I'll get to know who they are really afterwards. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and it's so funny because you're. I think you're exactly right. The, one of the things that you described is what I call uh, a coach's disproportionate social influence over their mm. team or over their class. Right? Is is that you know a coach being able to say, oh, just you know, like move however you want, isn't quite the same as a coach who can embody that. Isn't quite yes. the same as a coach who can bring that to the table in in a different way, right? And have a, a sense of, of really what are the possibilities. And as both competitive sports like, you know, soccer or hockey or basketball get more elite, but also as sports like gymnastics uh, or sports acrobatics, that as the level just of like pure sport performance continues to go higher and higher and higher and higher and higher, we're beginning to see at least kind of in professional performance. And I think a little bit also in competitive sport that having a, a creative or innovative or problem solving edge to how you think about the soccer field or how you think about a gymnastics beam is differ is a differentiating factor in elite performance and and if you try to graft that thinking on very very late in training it just doesn't have the same effect as building it in from the beginning as a base of of how we think about movement or how we teach people to think about movement, right? What is it to 
to have never learned that there are rules, but instead to always know that like, oh, all the movement is possible. And if I do it in this and this way, I'm going to get stronger in this way. And if I do it this way, I might get faster in this way. But, you know, like, what if I do it in my own kind of path? What if I learn it through my, my own direction? And, and even having that approach to how you move through the world in sport or performance or anything is, I think, a really valuable kind of mindset shift that movement coaches in circus or outside of circus can like all really learn from. I don't know if that will summarize what you say, but one thing I like to tell coaches is like, stop hunting mistakes. Like they become those like movement corrector and start hunting opportunities in your environment. So when they shift their focus, instead of looking at the body of your artist athlete and hunt for like, what technical mistake they did, start looking at your environment and start hunting for opportunity to use the space, the material, the connection in as many ways as you may think is uh, appropriate in a moment. And at the beginning, it's quite a challenge to do this like mind shift because they are so used to, oh, but technically like uh, her shoulder. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, what could you do with a beam? Like, what can you do with this space? How can you connect those two people together? Look at the opportunities in your environment with the person. And it, it, I don't know about you, Adam or, or Dean, but this takes time. Like this shift of paradigm is, is, is a, yeah, it doesn't happen overnight, let's say. Nope. No, next week. Not. Next week. Yeah, it takes at least two days. It takes at least two days, Vero. <laughs> hey, Vero, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw you, throw you something here. I don't know if you've ever talked about this, but I like working with, um, I don't focus on this, my age range is big, but children from five to 12 years of age value movement uh, more than anything else. And I want you to I would just respond to the notion of if we get children and their instructors in sport, recreation, physical education, performance arts, movement and instructors, opening up to the creative paradigm. What would you think would be the downstream effect if we helped with general creativity and movement, oh, sorry, in movement creativity? Kids, as they get older, dig into the domains that they like, music, science, later on. Do you think if all kids were problem solvers, decision makers, creative in their movement under 12, what do you think that would do downstream for society for all kids? I, I, I yeah, yeah, this is indeed a huge question, but I, I would like to answer. I think if more environments, the movement environment, let's start this way, uh, would allow more creativity, would be creativity supportive. I think it would be, it would give the permission to all to be. I don't know if that makes sense, but like those environments are not dictating anything. It's like, here's a space, here are some basic instruction or basic like stimulus. I like to call this more stimulus and then let's explore. So instead of having an outcome, like, you know, in education, they say teaching to the test. I think in sport, we coach to the competition or to the like 
final performance. And this is the paradigm we need to shift. So then we teach or we coach for the moment that we have in front of us. And we offer possibility by doing this, it would give all the permission to discover who they are. I know you like the concept of agency. We could build people that would not feel guilty of like, hey, you know what? I'm attracted to this domain. Like, I really feel that, I don't know, although my parents are both medical doctor, I feel I should become a performing artist. And I just, and I make like, I'm putting something here kind of extreme, but could be the same, like just giving them the permission to explore, discover and see what fits who they are. I really like the concept of person environment fit instead of the environment and the person must, must fit in the environment. And sometimes it's like trying to fit a square into a circle and then the corner, they don't fit, but wow, we're pushing and we're pushing. So man, make sure that their square will fit in the freaking square, which, uh, yeah, the square fit in the circle, whatever you got, what I uh, was trying to say. So yeah, I think this agency, the permission, we, we are not allowed, like permission is not afforded to us. Uh, when we grow, it's like, uh, yeah. So hopefully creating more of this could, it's very broad as an answer, but I think it's also, we need to shift, which makes me think we need to shift the science paradigm, which is always like, we know the answer before to run the research. Every time I go and do some creative work with any type of organization, I'm telling them at the beginning, I don't know what you Dean will get out of it. And you Adam will get out of it. It might be super different. Maybe Dean will create amazing social connection with another person in the in the group but maybe for you adam it will be all about your self-efficacy like we were talking earlier and maybe for a third member it would be about tolerance to discomfort and for it, it's that's the beauty of those intervention is that the outcome is unknown but the concept of transformation will happen it's just we cannot put a label on what will be the transformation which is a little bit against science like this hypothesis like hey when you do your like research design you should set hypothesis and my hypothesis is that it's going to transform people how we'll see once it's done you know it's funny because adam and i am talking about his master's thesis thing and tell more about what he's going to do allows for answers that we don't know we suspect but it can also create connections because we in the physical literacy movement world we're not just thinking about how many minutes you're a sweaty mess right that's the physical activity way of thinking that's dominated every country in the world for 50 years mm -hmm. and has taken us nowhere physical literacy is about valuing movement for its intrinsic reasons which is what circus is all about as well so we really don't care like you said beautifully it could be that i'm connected to my object and i'm speaking to a you know, a juggler in the room here as well. And, you know, they're connected to their objects and, you know, almost in a wrong way, but people can be connected to others or connected to place, or it can be the enjoyment part. It can be the competency confidence part. It doesn't matter how to check off. To me, what counts is how do I create a positive movement experience for all? I don't want to create negative movement experiences 
and accumulate those red mm-hmm. fireballs in one's lives. And there's just sadly too many people in this world accumulate negative movement experiences because they're not doing things like creativity. They're not doing things like inclusion. They're teaching to the top and not to the bottom. So I think this is still very exciting for me to see the emergence of these ideas that we're talking about today and and doing better movement sector delivery. And I, and I think that's what science really wants is to transform the world. We've lost sight of that bureau, as you said, and a, a bit, we're a bit too rigid still. And I think losing some of that rigidity will, as you suggest, help. Yeah. And I, I feel like the thing that, that I really take away from what both of you have talked about is, is the real need for circus artists or practitioners or teachers or coaches or recreationalists for the circus community to really identify and guard that, that this is the important thing about what we do, right? I think as this cultural, as circus begins to get bigger and, and expand, the influences of competitive sport, the influences of kind of institutionalized learning, and here are the outcomes we need to get. It's very tempting as a circus coach or as a circus school to, to teach to a competition or to teach that your students can get into Cirque du Soleil or to, to kind of try to create little circus robots, you know? And I think that it's really important to recognize that that the interest that people really have in circus is in its ability to foster innovation, in its ability to foster uniqueness, not in its ability to to create, you know, like little gymnastic robot dancers who can do every trick on on an apparatus or who can juggle a million balls, right? We're we're talking about expanding like you said earlier, Vero, right? Like circus has always been about showing people something they've never seen before about expanding the idea of what is possible, expanding the idea of what is possible for a human, expanding the idea of what is possible for society, expanding the idea of what is possible in performing art, expanding the idea of what is possible kind of in in all these different directions is something that that is at the heart, I think, of, of what circus is and what circus means to the world. And, and I just don't want us to lose sight of that. That's what's important about what we're talking about here. But, you know, Adam, it's funny because we have these tensions, you know, where we talk about we need to have a developmental pathway for circus. And I always guarded against that because the greatest success would be to never see another circus performer increase. It would be that all people are exposed to circus. And I mean that lightly because the greater number that are exposed to circus could could very well mean that we get more elite circus performers. But to me, that's the smaller part of the equation. The equation is everybody exposed to circus. And that that's, but, but you get tensions there, right? Just like we do in sport. There's only 10,000 people in the world that competed in the Olympics. There's, you know, 7 billion. <laughs> so I'm worried about the 7 billion, not the 10,000. And just like in circus, I love elite circus, but I'd rather have everybody exposed to circus and find a path in circus. That wouldn't necessarily mean they become elitists. And and not that elitism is bad, but they'd say that I want that. You know, I, I say to my, and, and, and Craig would know this, I was in Cardiff, Wales at Nofit State, and we were talking, and I said, this is the first time I ever said this to a group. And 
it was, you know, uh, our circus friends were all sitting there. And I said, physical literacy is a journey, not a destination. Because you create your own identity through movement. But when I met circus people, that's what I'd say to everybody. When I met circus people, I added a phrase. I went, physical literacy is a journey, not a destination. But if there ever was a destination, and I'm showing the heart symbol in my hand, it's circus. And so that is interesting because I saw <laughs> the most physically literate people in the world as circus people. And it doesn't mean they're at the end of that you know, pedestal or anything. It just meant that they had the right substances to make that special thing. And we are now realizing that it's physical literacy that protects people against injury. Physical literacy protects people against psychological issues, physical literacy, and just circus is just a great example of that. So, so that's, you know, uh, um, I think very exciting for me too is, and I also apologize. I don't want to like, I like being a scientist discovering things, but we'll never take away the magic of circus just because we know it. We never will. It'll always stay magical. Yeah, I agree. Like, it goes back to, like, elitism for some reason is too glorified. And each time that, like, a new sport gets into the Olympic movement, like, action sport, I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Like, whether it is, like, skateboarding, BMX, or, like, all those free, like, oriented sport, I'm... They, they will make you lose your magic. Like your magic is that <laughs> you have no system. The magic is that you don't count points. You just are amazed by one of your teammates that suddenly throw a trick that is completely outside of the imagination, you know? And it's like every time, like, I don't know, I met with Surfing Australia here this week and like those guys are so like, free oriented but now it's like the institution tried to make them create a plan and create a strategy and you're like no maybe that's not how it works maybe it's just cool that let them be let them be please don't overstructure <laughs> them i'm always worried about that and hopefully circus will resist the temptation of getting into the overstructure and over analytic of everything it, it's good that for elite performer there's some uh of course like uh how can we say that like information and stuff that are provided to them so they stay healthy and they do it in a safe way but like i think yeah the little you're right adam it's so important that circus people understand that their little magic is more into their process than anything else and yeah, yeah. if we can spread this to more domains. That would be awesome. Yeah. Vero, Dean, this conversation has been so exciting and has fulfilled my every expectation for it. <laughs> I uh, love talking with both of you whenever I can. Uh, thank you both for coming on. Uh, let's just do, there's this fun thing that I, I like to end uh, my circus classes with. I call Ooh. it a takeaway circle. You get like one or two sentences. What did you learn from this conversation today? What are you taking away from this conversation today? What is the message that sits with you after our conversation mm. today? Let's do a little takeaway circle. Whoever that wants to go first. That is not free to land, right? You just throw this at us. Mm, so spontaneous. Then you can be like, 
kind of rapid on the moment. Exactly. Spontaneous and creative. What is your one to, the, the real challenge here is, you know, one to two sentences. What's your takeaway? Well, I'm going to jump on it. I really think that all the circus people that listen to this podcast and all the others must take these messages and bring it to the people who aren't in circus. That is the most critical thing. If we keep this in our own little backyard, uh, it's great. We'll feel better. But get it out there. Talk about it in a convenient, in a way that people can go, oh, oh, I see why. So bring in some new people into the fold. I love it. Vero. Okay. My takeaway, and it's something I know, but I need to be reminded all the time, is the example Dean gave about the you can use wheel transportation. How do you how do you movement wheeling? How do you yeah. call this? Yeah, bicycling, active transport, wheel wheeled motion, like wheeled it, motion, wheel motion. Thank you. So wheel motion. There's so many way to wheel motion, and you know by listening to you today, Dean, I may experiment different wheel motion because here I'm in. All like I don't have a car. I'm in full on active transport. So yeah, I, I, like you gave me this like okay, yes, let's do this. Let's try as many different things as possible. Always good to be reminded that Adam, don't ex escape your own question, right? No, uh, no, I don't. I always do my own <laughs> takeaways. Uh, my takeaway from our conversation today is uh, that circus is awesome and that everyone should do it because that will make the world a better place. That's my takeaway from talking to, you know, like real scientists who have real credentials. Everyone agrees. Circus is awesome. Everyone should do circus. Thanks again to our panel of guests, Adam Woolley, Dr. Veronique Richard, and Dr. Dean Krillars for coming on the show and sharing with us their thoughts about the academic frontiers of circus. We hope that you found their conversation as interesting and inspiring as we have and invite you to stay tuned for our next episode, Territories of Circus Feminism, where yet another panel of international guests from around Latin America and Europe will be gathering to discuss their culturally nuanced experiences of feminism in circus. If you do not already have a Circus Talk profile, I invite you to create one. If you are a talent, take advantage of the new profile fields that make you stand out in talent searches. And if you are a talent seeker, do not miss out on accessing over 30,000 talent profiles from 193 countries. Circus Talk has a special offer for Circus Voices listeners. Receive 15% off your annual membership by using the code Circus Voices 2022. Our podcast design was created by Emily Holt and music was composed by Book Kenninson. You can follow the Circus Voices podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Today's episode is also available on circustalk.com.